Article 37 of the Belgic Confession, the last judgment. Finally, we believe, according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord is come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself the judge of all the living and the dead. He will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Then all human creatures will appear in person before the great judge, men, women, and children, who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world. They will be summoned there by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the divine trumpet. For all those who died before that time will be raised from the earth, their spirits being joined and united with their own bodies in which they lived. And as for those who are still alive, they will not die like the others, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye from corruptible to incorruptible. Then the books, that is the consciences, will be opened, and the, the dead will be judged according to the things they did in the world, whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will give account of all the idle words they have spoken, which the world regards as only playing games. And then the secrets and the hypocrisies of men will, and people will, will publicly un, be uncovered in the sight of all. Therefore, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people, but it's very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect, since their total redemption will then be accomplished. They will then receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. The evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciousness and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes and their cause at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. And so we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So far, the Belgic Confession, keep that open because we're going to be looking at some of the language that's in there and some of the words that are in there. One scripture reading that we already, already read is Isaiah 65. The other scripture reading that I want to go with you uh, now is from Matthew 25. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger or invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of the least of these, you did for me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was not sick and, you didn't, and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he'll reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's an old saying, nothing is as certain as death and taxes. You know that saying. That's a cute way of saying that in this life there are really only two things of which we can be absolutely sure, and that is if the government doesn't get us with all its taxes, the grave will. For the rest, we can't be sure about anything. Well, I wonder about that, because now as we come to the concluding article, the Belgian Confession, we join Guido de Bray in a confession concerning something in the future that is absolutely certain. Jesus will return. And while many Christians are disagreed on the sequence of events leading up to the last days, nonetheless, we're all agreed that Jesus will return to use the words of Guido de Bray, with great glory and majesty. That's the event to which history is leading. As Jesus bodily ascended into heaven, so he will come again, bodily, visibly, Emmanuel, God with us. History will not just somehow dissolve into oblivion or end in a puff of smoke, but it'll end on a very real glorious day, a day on which everyone will fall on their knees and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether they want to confess that or not. And what a day that will be. It's a day for which the church prays, come, Lord Jesus. 
And when Christ returns, says Belgic Confession, Article 37, he will declare himself the judge of the living and the dead, and, in the first paragraph, he will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. So Jesus will return for two specific reasons, and those are the two that I want to get at tonight because there's lots you can say about this last article of the Belgian Confession. But Jesus will return for two specific reasons, to judge and to make all things new. First of all, writes Debray, reflecting Scripture, all human creatures will appear in person before the great judge, men, women, and children who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world. So that's the first thing we're going to deal with, judgment. In the passage we read this evening from Matthew 25, Jesus himself states that judgment will come when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. In Revelation 20, verse 11 and following read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, and it was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 27, we read, Just as people were destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14.10 that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. There's all kinds of references, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to the day of the Lord when Jesus shall return to judge the nations in righteousness, as we just sang, as the psalmist puts it. Now, when we hear about and think about Judgment Day, I suspect that all sorts of questions come to mind. What will that day be like? long will it last? What's its purpose? Who will be judged? What will, we, what will be judged? And what are we to think about such a day? And so on. The questions abound. The answers may not always be that easy. The Bible does provide some clues, however, just clues. So we have to be a little careful about when we talk about all this Judgment Day stuff and the end of the world stuff, but the Bible does offer some clues. A theologian by the name of E.A. Lytton said that we have to be careful about how we, that in how we think about the scene in heaven before the great white throne. He warns us not to apply the analogy of a human court scene too literally to this heavenly court scene. He writes, quote, A human trial is strictly a process of investigation. In the last judgment, however, the judge is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. He has no need of evidence to convince him. He presides with a perfect knowledge of the character and the history of everyone who stands before him. The great day will be one, rather, of publication and execution. It will be one of publication and execution, rather than of judgment, strictly so-called. That's a remark worth noting. So the idea is when we come to stand before the Lord on the final day, it's probably not like the Lord will then begin an investigation into our lives. 
It's not like he's going to call out the crown attorney and the crown prosecutors and the defense attorneys and then and, and, and run the DVD of our life and go into all kinds of investigations and private investigators out to see what we did on such and such a date and so forth. And then upon hearing the arguments of the prosecution and defense makes his assessment as to whether or not we're guilty with the subsequent appropriate result. The Lord doesn't need to wait until judgment day to conduct an examination into people's lives to determine who will be saved and who will not. Actually, as Ephesians 1 verse 4 states, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in John 10, we learn that Jesus, as the good shepherd, knows his sheep and gives them eternal life. And these sheep are ones, he says, that no one can snatch out of his hand. And so if you're one of his sheep, your status is not going to change on judgment day. And the Bible teaches that those who are of the household of God, who are true believers, they have been declared not guilty, debt-free. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation. The courtroom battle has already taken place for those who are true believers. And in that courtroom, even though our consciences and the law and Satan declare us guilty of breaking the law of God, guilty of sin, yet it is God who declares us not guilty because of Jesus who has taken our place. And that's an awesome truth, one that we ought never to take for granted. And because of this reality in the believer's life, it is so that we can live in the comfort of knowing that we belong body and soul in life and in death, in non-judgment day and judgment day to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that belonging, that status doesn't change on judgment day. Hence the statement by Guido de Bray in Article 37. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We look forward to that great day because it's of no pain to those who are in Christ. So what's the purpose of the final judgment then? Well, to use Lytton's words, publication and execution. What will happen on the final judgment day is that the Lord God will reveal, as it were, if you want to use it, put it in those kind of words, the final destiny of each person. While the actual final destiny of each person is hidden yet from a passage such as John 3.18, we know that he who believes in him, that is Christ, is not condemned. Who does not believe is condemned already because that person has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Even now, a divine judgment already rests on those who believe and on those who refuse to believe in Jesus. But that judgment will not be revealed until the final day. And when that final day comes, two things concerning the Lord are going to be magnified. First of all, His grace will be magnified. While all deserve eternal punishment because of sin, the wages of sin is death, yet the Bible teaches that not all will be lost, for God has called out his people, and for them Jesus was crucified and died. And the fact that Jesus saved any at all 
is evidence of his marvelous grace and love. So his grace is going to be magnified, but his justice will also be magnified. God is righteous, so just that he must punish sin. He cannot just sweep it under the carpet and say it doesn't really matter. He can't just let it go. His justice demands that a price be paid. Those who do not believe, who do not know Jesus, do not know the Lord Jesus, will have to pay the price themselves. They're, they're lost. That's horrible to contemplate and to think about. But it is a reality, as the Scripture teaches it. On the final day, God will not only publicize what's going to happen, but he'll also make it happen. All the nations will be gathered before the Son of Man, says our text, which is a clear reference to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. In John 5.22 we read, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's clear that Jesus Christ will be the judge. He who was judged by others will now, be, will now sit in judgment. And then he will, says Matthew 25, separate the sheep from the goats, to use that language. It's language, it's agricultural language, which the people of the day could readily understand. A shepherd has no problems distinguishing between sheep and goats, not only because of their physical appearance, but especially because of their behavior. There'd be no problem for Jesus to separate believers from unbelievers in fulfillment of the prophecy of Matthew 16, where we read, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he'll reward each person according to what he has done. We'll live out of the natural consequences of our faith. Dr. Neil Plantinger, writing about all of this, says, quote, One gets the impression from this parable that our judge will not ask us how often we've read the Bible or prayed, nor how many times we have endured a church service, nor how eagerly we have cultivated the sort of personal piety that allows us to say, Lord, Lord, all the time. Some of these things we do, do nourish our faith, but Jesus Christ will want to ask what good works have come from our faith. As always, he will judge the tree by its fruits. We're not saved by good works, but by grace through faith, but good works are evidence of the faith. And those who are going to study James this coming year will know that to be very real. Death and taxes may be certain, but so is the fact that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So that's the first reason for his return, about which much more could be said. But secondly, and much more excitedly, he will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Oh, I love the way the, the confession ends on this point. One thing we do know from passages like 2 Peter 3.13 and Revelation 21.1 is that the Lord is not going to annihilate everything that presently exists and start all over again. When the Bible says that John saw a new heaven and a new earth, it ought to be understood that John did not see a universe emerge which was totally other than the present one. Rather, that which is to come, that which will be, is going to be in continuity with what we have now. God declared it. When he first made it, he declared it to be good, excellent. 
excellent even. So it is that one author described his understanding of what the new earth will be like or what heaven will be like in the following matter. He said, quote, the world into which we shall enter in the perusia of Jesus Christ on the last day of Christ is therefore not another world. It is this world, this heaven, this earth, both, however, passed away and renewed it's these forests, these fields, these cities, these streets, these people that will be the scene of redemption. At present, there are battlefields full of strife and sorrow of, not, of the not yet accomplished consummation. Then there'll be fields of victory, fields of harvest, where out of seed that was sown with tears, the everlasting sheaves will be reaped and brought home, unquote. And then as for all those descriptions in the Bible of heaven that talk of streets of gold and all sorts of other precious stones to describe the place, those are only human descriptions using human terms to try to explain something so grandiose and something so wonderful that simple human words do not do it justice. The descriptions of heaven in such books as Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, for example, are all pictures of something that no sinful mind can understand. How can we possibly understand a world where there is no pollution? What does that look like? In all of this, we must remember that the Lord does not save his people by snatching them out of this world and placing them into some unreal spirit world out in the wild blue yonder. No. Jesus came to redeem his entire creation from the effects of sin. And when the final great day comes, God will cleanse all things in the fire of judgment and transform all things for his grand new order. The old order, that is the things that, have, that we have around us here and now, will not necessarily disappear so that the final result will be totally different. Instead, the old order of things as we have them or see them now will be purged, cleansed, scrubbed, perfected, refined. That's, of course, why Reformed people have always held to the notion that what we do today has value for not only today, but for all of eternity. Ask yourself this question, wrote Reverend Nick Overdyne. Will heaven be more interesting or less interesting than our present earth? If God is indeed the creator of the entire cosmos, why would heaven turn out to be less interesting than our present earth? And then he goes on in his article to describe how he discovered, for example, there are, and that goes back to our theme for the summer, there are 679 basic tree types in North America alone with all kinds of subspecies. And besides these types of trees, there are the imported trees as well as the ornamental varieties. Now asks Overdyne, quote, why 679 kinds of trees, and this only in North America? Surely a few oaks, maples, and pines would have sufficed. Why is God so outlandishly extravagant in the way he decorates the planet? 
Should we assume that heaven will demonstrate less of this character trait? And then he adds, I think it'll show a whole lot more. I think he's right on. And while he mentions only the trees, one can add animals and flowers and people and mountains and rivers and lakes and all those kinds of things. Truly, the Lord is an amazing creator. The heaven and heaven, the new earth, will be even more interesting than the realities we know now. Says Debray, and as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them, <clears throat> that is, his people, possess a glory such as the human heart could never imagine. Indeed. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks about eternal life as follows in question and answer 58. <clears throat> After this life, I have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one has imagined a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Think about that. The confessional statement doesn't speak about harps or halos or clouds or wings or weird stuff. It talks like Debray does in Article 37 about a changed world, a world so unimaginably wonderful that those who were blind will see sights no, pers no seeing person has ever seen before. And those who were deaf will hear sounds no hearing person has heard before. It's a world in which the lame and the paralyzed will walk and run and leap before the Lord and in which the dumb will shout their praise. It's a world in which there will be no more tears. It's the type of world described by Isaiah 65 and, this, and as described in the vision given to John in Revelation 21. Behold, I will create, the same word used for create in Genesis 1-1, a new heaven and a new earth. A city, Jerusalem, used as a symbol of the gathering of God's people will be established, and because of its perfection and because of its holiness, it's going to be a delight to all peoples, and God will delight in his people because they will serve him fully and perfectly. And the delight will be mutual. The old sinful ways will no longer be remembered. All the old miserable things we did and involved ourselves in will not be remembered. Can you imagine a world in which abuse will not be there at all? Now they may cause us to weep and cause us great embarrassment, but not then. Infant mortality will be a thing of the past. For that matter, death will not be there. Disease, tears, sighs, depression, loneliness, broken relationships, all the things that cause us so much pain in this world will not exist. The people of the Lord, those saved by grace, will work in this paradise regained as Adam and Eve worked in the first paradise. Worked, lived. Isaiah 65, 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Wonderful news to Israel. It meant that the day was coming. There'll be no more robberies or evictions at the hands of their enemies. The day was coming, God promised, when no longer would their produce be destroyed by many as many a foreign army tended to do in times of invasion. Rather, the day was coming when the people's work would be blessed and, and yield fruit abundantly. And the relationship between God and his people would be an intimate one. 
with the Lord providing all that they needed for life. When I call, he hears. When he calls, I hear. We walk and talk with each other. And the beautiful picture continues in Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Now the wolf would eat the lamb. The lion will not necessarily kill for its food, but will eat straw like the ox. In other words, all cruelty, hurt, fear will disappear from the new creation. Perfect love drives out fear, says the New Testament. There will be nothing offensive in heaven. Can you imagine? Nothing offensive. All the brokenness caused by sin will be healed and shalom will reign over the earth. God's people will live in perfect fellowship with the Lord and with each other. The law will be perfectly fulfilled and there will be no more need for churches or temples. I'll be out of a job. Now all of this is more than the heart, the human heart, could ever imagine. Overdyne writes, quote, Jesus did not save us in order to give us less of a deal. He came to give us life, more abundant life. You see, the future for the child of God is totally different than for those for whom Judgment Day will be horror and dread. For the child of God, there will be a future of glory and honor, a future of great joy, a future of being in the presence and living with Emmanuel, God with us. And as Debray sat in prison, it was on this note that he closed the Belgic Confession. And it's on this note that we end our study of this confession. And what a note to end on. We end with hope. We end with assurance in our hearts that Jesus is coming again. And that when he comes, the great judgment day will take place and all things will be made new. And so we look forward to that great day with longing in order to fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John ended his revelation in the same way with longing when he writes that prayer that is the prayer of the church. Come, Lord Jesus. And to that prayer, Jesus said, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father in heaven, as we come to the close of the Belgian Confession, that as we think about where all of history is heading to Judgment Day, we it leaves us with lots of questions. And what we heard tonight is only but a small beginning of a discussion about it all. But Lord, you come to judge and you come to make all things new. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would be gracious to the human race. We've made such a mess of things. We thank you, Lord, that you will make all things new. That the day is coming that this whole place will be purged and made like it was in the first place. We can't even imagine what that looks like. Fill us with longing. Fill us with a desire to see you face to face. Come, Lord Jesus, in a world that is so broken, 
in a world where there is so much pain and anguish and strife and sin, come and make all things new, we pray. That's our prayer. And thank you for your promise that you are coming soon. Amen.